Hooray. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Simon Zavellino, your host. And our guest today is a master storyteller working with brands looking to resonate with their consumers. He has addressed the United Nations, attended the Nobel Prize, traveled the world with Elizabeth Taylor, and galvanized the advertising industry. We will deep dive into how to make your brand stand out, what brands do to stand out, and lessons learned from the world of branding. Welcome, everybody. Joseph Panetta. Hello, hello. Joseph, great to have you here. What are you currently creating? You know, I come out of the consumer product, consumer packaged goods world, right? And lately, I've been working deeply in the B2B and tech arena. And let me tell you something about B2B enterprise sales. They're boring. And the two things that I'm working on what? are both in the technology front. Yeah, they're boring, my friend. I just went to the legal technology trade show, which is basically boring, boring, and more boring. So the notion of standing out, right, is not just about throwing glitter all over something. In this instance, the two things that I'm creating are meant to be outstanding in an authentic and relevant way for the audience. So one of them is an advanced AI platform that is actually aimed at the skincare and beauty industry. And this is the first time anyone has pointed machine learning and artificial intelligence at skincare. So that's super interesting. We actually had a, a POC that we just delivered to one of the top three global beauty brands. And we're in conversations with one of the other top three global beauty brands to do all of their work. It's fascinating. And the second is in the, this legal tech arena that I just mentioned. Um, it's really organized for litigators, arbitrators, mediators, and courts. And the idea is that there is now an online platform that's bespoke for them to do hearings, mediations, arbitrations, et cetera. We actually went into this trade show talking about regenerative resolution, dispute resolution and sustainability. Our booth literally looked like we just took a tranche of the Amazonian rainforest. We had a back wall that was entirely a living wall. All of our um, uh, coverings were burlap. Our floor was bamboo. Every piece of wood we had was either reclaimed or uh, recycled. And what it did for the, for the show was it made us look different it pulled focus. People from the minute we started the setup came over to find out what's going on over here. The show organizers photographed our booth and tweeted it because they're like, this is different in the legal industry, but it was authentic because we're about sustainability. We're about you know helping people not have to fly all over the world to settle disputes, especially during a pandemic and give them an online bespoke tool to help them do that. So those are the things that I'm working on right now. And so, People do B2B sales the boring way. Because I guess you don't mean B2B sales is boring, but people do it the boring way. Like many people say Zoom is boring, but there are some cool Zoom experiences. To me, B2B sales is so exciting. It's actually the D1 master discipline because what's the currency? What's the real currency behind B2B sales? I think it's love. It's caring. It's, you know, it's about the client and showing how much you care and why why you educate, teach, uh, serve, etc. But if you take it transactionally, like, oh, I give you this, you give me this, uh, here's the contract, talk to them. That's boring. I couldn't agree more. You're absolutely right. It is about love, but it's not, it, I think you're talking about motivation. And what I'm talking about is how you show up, how you demonstrate and illustrate how you care. 
And so why you care is ideally obvious, right? But how you show that to your customer is an utterly different experience. As you know, there are the B2B sales and enterprise sales folks that do customer service really, really well and those that don't. Because those that do customer service well and client service well are those that are demonstrating their love for their clients and their tool. So let's go there. What is what is customer service? Because many here listening right now, oh, I got customer service. Uh, I don't want to be boring. Uh, I want to share that I, that we care. Uh, what what are you seeing in your work that that works? I'm finding that those who follow Tony Shea from Zappos, his his original methodology, which is make it easy, simplify, streamline. The person on the other end of the phone is number one probably grumpy because they've encountered a problem. Number two, they don't understand the problem they've encountered. And there's either a problem on their end or a problem on the tool's end. Either way, it's a problem on the tool's end, <laughs> even if it isn't, right? And then the, the final prong of that is treat them with respect and understanding and let them know you're here to solve the problem. Right. And that and we've all had that great airline sales rep that did a wonderful job at helping us sort out an issue that we might have actually created ourselves. And the one that was just kind of like grumpy back to us. That's the care that we illustrate. That's how you show your clients they matter. And the best thing you can possibly do is follow up with them afterwards. Not in an automated, you know, Salesforce generated email way, but in a more personal way. Hi, I'm Debbie. I helped you with, you know, yesterday on your problem. I just want to make sure everything was sorted out. Even if the person doesn't reply, the mere fact that you sent them the check-in, it's like when the waiter comes back to your table and says, is everything all right? Can I get you anything else? That little moment, that little check-in actually increases their tip in my mind because they demonstrated care. They wanted to be sure everything was okay. It doesn't matter if I respond. It matters that they showed it to me. Oh my God, yes. If I think of this week and my experiences as a, as a consumer, as a client of stuff, not even 10% of the experience was of a caring kind. It was more like, oh, no, 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 no. it's not my department. They call me tomorrow and, ah, oh, no, please, I need help. I, I, I understand why companies set up guardrails and processes because at a certain point at scale, you have to. But I believe that those who actually really deeply succeed are those that believe no job is beneath me. And even if it's not my job, it's still my job because they're a client and everything that has to do with this brand. If I'm the if I'm the sort of nexus point for this person, I need to show them care. I need to show them that this brand is here for them, because at that moment, you're not a customer sales representative. You are a brand ambassador. And the experience of that moment will tell that client everything they need to know about your brand. And even, I think even, even referral partnerships and other people promoting you comes from that moment of caring. Today, I made a video on YouTube about how you can keep your hard asset and borrow against the hard assets instead of selling your assets. And I picked as a platform, I did not pick Platforms that don't care. I don't say names, but there are many that just don't care. And I would never recommend them. I recommended one specifically, even if I don't get paid for them. But when I recommend something, I want to recommend good stuff that you can trust, that will be caring, right? So I'm not even getting paid by them, but I recommended them publicly because they care. And it's it's 
that is the value of your brand, my friend. And that's why people continue to follow you because it's not about the WIFM for you. It's about the WIFM for your audience. That shows how you care about your audience. And the, and the moment was just being a customer of that platform. Uh, I will not promote them here publicly, but just being a customer and having questions and seeing other customers asking questions and the way they answered uh, with care versus just not caring or not answering even in the software where you have even not answering. Yeah. And the, the thing I, I hate the most is when the chat bot tries to understand my complex, nuanced problem, and it just never does. It's like screaming representative into the phone. <laughs> I, I literally start yelling at, the, at my computer. <laughs> we all do, because once you've gotten to the point of complaint, that's where you are. That's where you are, right? You're at the point of yelling into the phone. <laughs> I do. I do. Uh, but I also like yelling sometimes. I'm Italian. I, you know, we, we speak a lot just for fun. My last name also ends in a vowel, my friend. Panetta. So. All right. And so I am super curious, where do you take your inspiration from? Are there any books or podcasts that inspire you? You know, a few years ago, I was confronted with a very interesting question. And it made me think, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to land this plane quickly, but I, I, I want you, this is really good context. I was asked, what children's book resonated with you most? What was the children's book that you asked your family, your parents to read to you time and time again? What's the one where it stuck with you? And, and I confess, I, I had to think about that for a minute. And I, I share the prequel because my reply may surprise you. Two of my three top book choices are children's books. One of them is a little-known Dr. Seuss book called Star-Bellied Sneetches. And the whole story is about the dangers of conformity, about what it's like when you try to be like everybody else and what that race gets you, right? And the second one was The Emperor's New Clothes. I always identified with the little boy who spoke the truth, the obvious truth, he doesn't have any clothes on, right? He spoke truth to power. He told the obvious. And those two things have really shaped how I approach. Listen, to be asked the question, like what children's book stuck with you kind of sent me for a loop. But that has now stuck with me because now that frames, it helped me. You know, they say that um, life is understood by look, it must be lived forwards, but is understood looking backwards. Looking backwards, I understand now why those books stuck with me, because they shaped how I view what I do how the dangers of conformity, that's why I like standing out. The, the speaking truth to power, telling a brand, a president, a CEO, that this is not the right way. Like these are, these are things that I do now that were informed by those books I loved as a child. So that's kind of where that comes from. And the, the last one I'll give you is a fairly recent book and it was written by one of Obama's speechwriters um, named John Pollock. And the book is called Shortcut. And it's all about the use of analogy and the way that analogy helps us understand what we don't already know. And the beautiful thing about that is that I've spent my entire life using analogy in my own head. I didn't realize the power of it until I read that book. And I understood that when brands communicate, communicate to customers, especially to new customers about a new thing, they have to attach it to something that the customer already understands in order to bridge to the thing that's new about them. And so those are the three books that really give me the inspiration. I, I begin to frame how I lend, how I look at a problem, a brand, a, a 
a strategic challenge through those things. How do I stand out and not conform to everything else on the shelf in an authentic and relevant way? How do I frame what I need to say to those in control so that they understand that this is in the best interest of the brand? It may not be politically expedient. It may not even be easy, but in the long run, it will be in the best interest of the brand. And finally, how do I describe it to the customer? I, I had an, um, an instance once where one of the clients said, I don't understand this. Now she was in her seventies um, and she was on a, a board of people and they wanted to increase their appeal among people who were in their thirties. And I politely said to her, you don't have to, it's not designed for you, right? It's designed for the customer you wish to bring in. So the fact that it doesn't appeal to you is actually a good thing. And there was this moment of like where I had to, it was a challenge to her, but at the same time, she intrinsically understood I was right. It isn't about her. It's about the customer they want to attract. And so when I give you this sense of like that, those are the books that kind of shape the lens through which I, I view issues and problems. That's really where it comes from. I love it. And I think there is a lot of power in that, let me see this from the child's perspective because it's it's direct, it's emotional, and it's it's natural, right? And last week, usually when I write a big offer and I send a big offer, before I send it, usually I pick my smartest colleagues in my teams. Hey, look over it, I'm sending it tomorrow. This time I picked my kids who are six and three, and I said, what do you think of this presentation? And I was looking at their reaction and the first one was super boring reaction. And so I redid it with Formula One cars, etc. And then they, they looked at it and they go, whoa! And I said, now it's ready. Now I can send it. And so, and also the, the non-conformity, the danger of non-conformity. We see it right now in the world. If we just flow with it, that's not that's not good enough we need we need people with courage who stand up and do the right things and this is usually where i ask you if you could pick one person who when everybody zigs this person zags but from your perspective they're doing the right thing who do you pick you know the 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 one that's really caught my eye over the last couple of years is a gentleman called jason burke he's the ceo of a company called the new primal it started out as an all natural snack food company or snack food brand. Um, they made jerky to begin with. Um, they wanted sort of portable, delicious protein. And he was making it while he had another job, but all of his colleagues kept, com kept coming to his desk asking for that jerky. And so little by little, this blossomed into a force for good in the food and snack arena. Now they make condiments and sauces and seasoning and, and more, and they're, you know, they're just exploding. What I love about them is the authentic approach and the positioning. It sets them apart as a brand, as a team, and as people. So I really, I, I look to them for what's new. But listen, the grocery store is probably one of the last great brand warfare zones, right? Like it's a tough, tough place to stand out and they've managed to do it. I recently, somebody posted an AI project and this was, you know, you have you have some stuff on and you are in the metaverse. What do you do? You go to the grocery store. And I was like, I don't want to have this experience in the metaverse. I am going away from that experience and I, it hunts me there. It's an awful experience. <laughs> 
you know, the, the, the metaverse strikes me as it probably has some great business applications. So if, um, if for example, you're a construction company and an alarm is going off in a building in another city, the fact that you could actually put on a goggles and say, um, tell the, you know, the person who's on site, it's the button on the left, right? Cause you're seeing, you're both seeing the same panel that it strikes me there are applications for it. But outside of that, the metaverse is probably going to evolve into my prediction. And I'm, you know, just one person to your point, nobody wants to replicate their reality. They want to actualize their fantasy, right? That's what the metaverse is capable of doing is delivering you in your own movie. Like the Instagram and Facebook gave us the opportunity to become our own broadcaster. The metaverse should be the opportunity for us to be the star of our own movie. How are your your clients, people that you work with, starting to use the new technologies, blockchain, metaverse? Blockchain is, especially in the legal industry, a very much a curiosity because of the provenance, the authenticity, and the, the protection around things like evidence and stuff like that. So that's a that's very much um, a consideration that, and something that people are talking about. We're still a few years away from, you have to understand that like the, the legal industry, we're talking about courts and, and, and law firms, they're the last people to adopt anything, seriously. Um, they really, really are because it's got to be battle-tested, fireproof, and they can't afford mistakes because then they violate things like privilege and you know process and stuff like that. Metaverse is something that is a head scratcher because it seems to a lot of my my business colleagues a little bit like uh, Second Life Revisited, but better. So the question is, how can they apply? They're interested in understanding how they can apply it to their businesses, but no one has a locked solution. The question becomes, if you're a watch company, what do you do with the metaverse, right? The If I were in that seat, my answer would be offer people who are interested in watches a deeper understanding and envelopment. It's almost like consider it a brand baptism. So if I'm interested in a prestige watch brand like a Blancpain, for example, I would love to be taken on a virtual tour of the factory. I would love to be taken inside the watch and shown how the gears work and given a little bit of a history lesson about these things. It deepens my appreciation for the timepiece. That is an, a deployment of the metaverse that I think could be very creative and very interesting for brands if they adopt that sort of approach. And when you walk in there on one of the walls, you see your picture. This is this is Peter. He's, he's uh, client number 4,000. Bingo. Wouldn't that be brilliant? <laughs> Um, who who are the perfect clients for you? Who should consider working with you on their brand? You know, I, I recently mapped out my ideal client profile. I've been doing, I've been out on my own now for 12, 15 years, and I've had a lot of different kinds of clients. It isn't a particular industry that interests me because I'm, I'm blessed because I love what I do. The ideal client profile is typically a brand that's somewhere north of call it 10, 15 million dollars in sales and can be as high as, you know, a couple hundred million dollars in sales. But the thing that they they've encountered is they want to create a halo, a variant. They want to recapture their momentum. Those kinds of wicked problems, as the Harvard Business Review would call them, are almost never solved by someone who's in the problem. Because the more you try to fix it, that's the definition of a wicked problem. The more you're in the problem and try to fix it, it creates knock-on effects down the road that you don't envision. So as an outsider, my ability is to be able to come in and actually see the forest and the trees 
and understand what the pathways are to get where they want to go. You cannot change the system from inside the system, right? This is what many people don't get, that organizations are, are systems and, um, and that you have to try something that comes from another angle. And that's why people pay you and other great consultants to come in, see from the outside, challenge, do stuff that they wouldn't dare to do or where they go to autopilot. They go, yeah, yeah, we tried this 15 years ago. It didn't work. So what? What's the hypothesis right now? <laughs> what can we trust right now? And so what are some some projects that you, 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 you want to share lessons from and you are allowed to share from? Sure. Um, there are a few. I think probably one of one of the most interesting ones that I, I had the you know honor to work on was the launch of the Wonder Bra. And this goes back a ways. But what what most people don't realize is there were there are basically the success of that brand in America when it launched. We sold one Wonder Bra every 13 seconds in the absence of advertising because we didn't have the ads ready. So it was everything we did outside of advertising that drove those kinds of sales. Mm. And we adopted an approach used in the fragrance industry. The fragrance industry has two kinds of marketing approaches, what's called above the sheets and below the sheets. Below the sheets is very much woman for man, right? It's very boudoir oriented. Whereas above the sheets is more woman for herself, self-empowerment, I'm doing this to feel confident for myself. Wonder Bra chose the strategy, we chose it for them, to be above the sheets, less boudoir and more about self-confidence. As a result, because you have to understand this from a woman's perspective, when you do something like a lingerie show, you have women in, with perfect bodies in lingerie strutting on a catwalk. What do you do for the women in the audience? It sets up hatred in their minds. I mean, that woman is, you know, I hate her because she's so great. It's like when I go to the gym and I see the guys with the great physiques, and I'm like, damn, I, I kind of hate them a little bit, you know? So what we needed to do was to bring those women along the journey by showing them this isn't about the model and the perfect body. It's about the confidence it gives you. And so the way we did that was through really dynamic deliveries. We created very, very different deliveries. We um, arrived in a Brinks truck at one. We lowered them by a helicopter in another. Every time we landed at a retail destination, a Macy's, a Robertson's, a Marshall Fields, any one of those, we had lines of women out the door to buy the product that was being dropped off. News cameras showed up. It was a, a big, big to do, but it was all predicated around woman for herself. You get to choose. It was an incredibly empowering thing. Now, Victoria's Secret chose the other approach. They did very much, you know, woman for man, very boudoir, the whole angel miracle bra, that whole, you know, big thing. There's room in the market for both. We're not saying one is good and one is bad. But if you're going to choose a position, you want to choose a position that's different from your main competitor because you want to be able to stand apart from them. And you probably definitely don't want to do half-ass both. No, that's the that, that's a losing proposition from day one. You know, that Tony Robbins always says, if you do what you've always done, you'll get what you always got. My adoption for that is if you do what somebody else did, you'll get less and less every time. Like the worst thing you could do today is to be a soda and use the playbook of Coke or Pepsi. Been done before. Because what I see every day is people, okay, who's your ideal client? Hey, it's families and it's small businesses. And I go, okay, which which fight will you pick? 
And they go, no, it's it's 50, 50, 50 of my revenue. And I say, yeah, which fight will you pick? Do you see this kind of things? Yeah, I do. Um, it's a for brands that have that kind of bifurcated approach. My solution for them is either make a choice or split the brands. Mm -hmm. Because that it, if you think about the big conglomerates, for example, in, in the beauty industry, you can have a house with many brands. The Estee Lauder companies has, you know, probably 25 to 50 brands underneath it. They all serve different, you know, different segments of the same customer base. There's enough room for everyone. If you're a brand and you want to choose families and small businesses, my answer to you is you need two different brands, brand A and brand B, because those are not the same messages. They're not the same audience. They're, you know, not the same approach. By the way, it can be the same stuff in the bottle, but it's not the same marketing effort. And now I, I, I literally hear many listeners right now going, oh, okay, I have to pick one, but I'm afraid. Uh, what should I, how to, how to pick the right one and how to de-risk the process? De-risking the process is the biggest question. The answer to how do I pick one, my answer is pretty simple. It's not important. The choice is not the hard part. Living with the consequences is. Don't look at the two as like, which one do I choose? Look at them through the lens of, which one am I willing to take the hit on, right? So if I give it up, what are the consequences of that? Can I live with it, right? That's where the decision lies, not in which one do I choose A or B. De-risking the process is a completely different question and it's a much, much harder nut to crack. In my past, what I've done is I look at the history, where we've succeeded and try to unfold or sort of unpack why what was it about that process that customer that thing that worked then i look outside because one of the best things you can do is understand this is one of my questions for all of my clients when i first start with them what is your gold standard brand doesn't have to be in your category but what's the brand you feel is getting it right and i get answers across the spectrum and then i ask them why what is it about that brand that makes you say they're the gold standard very often people will say apple and i'm like okay why and what do you think Apple is? Well, Apple is a technology company. Apple is not a technology company. Apple is a consumer products company that sells technology. But they're a consumer product company. Don't get it twisted, right? And then I what, thought Apple what is, is a like, church. You get in there, it's just, Whoa. there are no prizes, no features. Whoa. When you say, when you get in there, you're talk, speaking of the temple of the brand, the stores, right? But why do people line up outside the stores? It's not because of the glass box architecture. It's because the people inside are there to infect you with their passion. They're there to evangelize about all things Apple. And speaking of customer service, circling back to our earlier conversation, when you go in there with your broken MacBook, they are excited to fix it for you. They are, yes. they're, they're like as puzzled about the problem as you are, but they're excited at the opportunity to solve it for you. That kind yes. of passion, you cannot buy with any amount of money. And what happens when you leave that store? Ultimate customer service, ultimate customer experience, no matter how grumpy I was when I walked in, I come out saying, wow, that was great. Even if the problem is going to take a couple more weeks to solve, I feel cared for, to use your term, right? And so when people say, that's what I love about that brand, my question for them is, how can your brand actualize the thing that you love about your gold standard, whether it's the customer service or the passionate salespeople? What is that experience you're looking to replicate? Because that 
unlocks the de-risking of the process for two reasons. One, you know it's been done before, so in another category and successfully, and you can have some kind of line of sight into what made them successful. And secondly, now you have a vision to galvanize your team around. Wow. And I was literally thinking last time, first time I, I bought my Mac, I think it was 17 years ago, and I never touched anything else. They get me. They get what I where, where I am, what I need, and what is what this is about. And um, last time I had to buy a new one, and I do my research, and I go to the store, and I say, "Yeah, I need this huge thing there." And they go, "No, no, no, take the little M1." And I go, "But that's much cheaper. Is it strong enough? I need the strongest." And they go, "It's much stronger. It's cheaper, but it's much stronger. It's a better chip." And so they really helped me, and not their own their own monthly revenue. But really, me. because they were looking out for you, because your lifetime value as a customer is worth more than the margin they make on the higher priced item. That's because they're looking out for you. Yeah, they are doing it absolutely right. And we have so many examples. That's great that we collected so many practical examples. This this is an episode to watch, rewatch and implement people. You you got you got a free consulting right now here from Joseph. <laughs> And um, if people want even more consulting from you, where, where can they find you? My website is L-O-C-C. That stands for left of center consulting dot M-E, me. They can look me up on LinkedIn. It probably has my most, most robust content. And many of the examples that we're discussing are written out there. So they can actually see, you know, articles and videos about those, those things. Um, one last thing I want to leave you with. Strategy is about choices, right? Fundamentally, do I pick option A or option B? The answer to the question is that it gives you a lens through which you decide which tactics to deploy. And now what will happen is along the way, you'll come up with ideas or people will present you with ideas and opportunities that are fantastic, but are they aligned with the strategy? If they're not, then by having made that strategic decision, that idea has to go in the file right? For deployment at a later time, because it doesn't work. It doesn't mean the idea is bad. It doesn't mean that the idea is wrong or that the opportunity is bad or wrong. It just means it isn't aligned with our strategy. Sticking to a strategy is harder than picking one. Yes, much harder. And, um, and, and because it will become at some point, you go with the distraction, with the funky new stuff. Oh, and if I do this and if I do that, I totally agree. And also keeping it simple, right? As you grow, my business has become complicated and the SOPs were so simple and now they are so bloated and it's it's so hard to keep it simple, right? And so if, and you're, if your vision is to keep it simple, then the folks writing the SOPs have a three-word directive. Make it easy. Make it easy. Make it easy on us internally. Make it easy on our clients, our customers, our vendors, our partners. The goal is to, I want to be, the most effective, most loved brand that any of these people connect with. And the way I do that is by, of course, caring and making it easy for people to interface with me. Wow. This is a great episode. I will re-listen re, re to it when I go running tomorrow. And um, Joseph, who should be my next guest? Have you talked to Sasha Strauss from Innovation Protocol? Not yet. 
you absolutely must. I will happily broker an introduction. Sasha is a brilliant mind. Um, he and his team are doing some exciting, interesting things at Innovation Protocol for multi global for global brands, for local brands, for the University of California. He's truly someone I look to and admire greatly. Super cool. Joseph Panetta, everybody, go get this guy. Um, where where are you socially? Where do you hang out on socials? Um, Instagram, LinkedIn mostly. Uh, I, I don't do Twitter. I haven't figured out how to be a twit yet. Um, I'm sure I will at some point. <laughs> Super cool. Thank you, Joseph Panetta. It was such an amazing episode. And uh, everybody, keep rolling. Go to Joseph Panetta and uh, continue this wonderful conversation. Keep rolling, everybody. <laughs>